0: Washington and Beijing are engaged in an increasingly intense contest spanning nearly all domains of power and the stakes cannot be higher. It is a competition between the world's leading constitutional democracy and the world's leading authoritarian power. While this contest between the United States and China is a global one, it is most acute in Taiwan, where the free people there are confronting the very real prospect of military aggression from the Chinese Communist Party in the coming years. Indeed, if there is to be a war between the United States and China, many expect it would come first in the Taiwan Strait. What is the military situation there and why should Americans and our allies care? What would aggression toward Taiwan look like? And is there a growing gap between Washington's words and actions when it comes to deterring such aggression or defeating it if deterrence fails? To discuss these questions and more, I am joined by two leading experts, retired Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery and Elbridge Colby. Mark is the Senior Director of FDD's Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation. During his 32 years in the US Navy as a nuclear-trained surface warfare officer, he held a number of important assignments, including Director of Operations, or J3, at US Pacific Command, and commander of Carrier Strike Group 5, embarked on the USS George Washington stationed in Japan. He later served as policy director to John McCain on the Senate Armed Services Committee. Bridge Colby is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development in the Pentagon, and he spearheaded the development of the 2018 National Defense Strategy. His recent book is The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. I'm Brad Bowman, Senior Director of FDD's Center on Military and Political Power. I'm honored to be filling in as host for Cliff May, and I'm so glad you're with us, too, here on Foreign Policy.
1: some rules in the world or there are Every U.S. Rules. president has tried to
2: diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. We're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981
1: who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran
2: is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not
1: correct could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken.
0: And Mark, I want to thank both of you for making time to sit down in person to talk about Taiwan, uh, what seems to be, I think, a growing gap, as you wrote, uh, Bridge, recently between Washington's words and actions, and and most importantly, what steps we need to take to kind of address that that growing gap, I would say. So That's uh, it's great to see both of you. I consider you both friends and leading experts on this topic, so it's a real privilege to sit down with both of you.
1: Privilege is mine. Great to
0: be with you, Brad, and with Mark as
1: well. I thank you, Brad. Thanks, Bridge. Thanks.
0: All right. So before we get into those some of the details that I just uh, previewed there, Bridge, I'd love to kind of start at the highest level. You know, we have people who listen to this podcast that live around the country. You know, they're, they're busy with their own lives. Uh, they they are concerned about some issues that may be a little closer to home. How how would you answer the question, Why should I as an American care about Taiwan?
2: Well, look, I think it's a good question, actually. I mean, it's halfway around the world. It's a small island. Most people have never been to, or many Americans probably, you know don't know anybody from Taiwan, et cetera. I I think the argument, though, is is actually really uh, it's in American self-interest. I think we can admire what Taiwan has achieved in its democracy and its economic development, but that's not the ultimate reason. The ultimate reason is about China and about China's ability to dominate Asia, which will be upwards of half of global GDP. If China establishes a hegemonic position over Asia and upwards of 50% of global GDP, they will – control is a little strong, but they will – Effectively, almost control the global economy, and Americans' lives will absolutely suffer. I mean, I think we can see the future not only in China's behavior towards ourselves, but Australia, Canada, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, et cetera, You name it, and of course, the the the, the you know uh, CCP's own behavior towards its people. So, um, so that's one thing. Why is Taiwan important? Well, the, the balance of power in um, in Asia is more delicate than it it appears. And and part of that is because, you know, it sounds like the Pacific Ocean is a huge area, but almost all of the population, the economic productivity are concentrated on the Western edge. Uh, You know, uh, uh, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, the ASEAN countries of Southeast Asia, India, et cetera. Um, And basically, Taiwan is very important to that. Taiwan is, I, I would say, important in particular for two basic reasons. One is China, I think, probably will have to use military force to achieve this hegemonic position. And Taiwan is very significant militarily. And I'm sitting next to a retired uh, rear admiral, but with a little trepidation, you know, Taiwan has historically been called the unsinkable aircraft carrier. It's the kind of the cork in the middle of this first island chain. If China can take Taiwan, it's basically has... Not quite uninhibited, but much less inhibited military access into the Central Pacific and the ability to cut off Japan from Australia, et cetera. Much more, much, much more difficult military situation. The second reason is that Taiwan is a signal, whether we like it or not. Countries in Asia do not want to live under China's domination, Japan, India, Vietnam, but they're wondering whether it's prudent to stand up to Asia. And the only basis for on which it's prudent is if the United States is involved heavily and can make it because we are the only country that's remotely as strong as China in the world. And whether we like it or not, we are basically committed to Taiwan. So if you're in Japan or even more, if you're in Hanoi or Manila or other countries in Southeast Asia, you're going to be looking at how the Americans behave. And if we just let Taiwan go, uh, I think they will quite reasonably say why would the Americans treat us any different? I'll stress something though, Brad, that <clears throat> which is Taiwan is very important, but I consider it a kind of like a 70% order of magnitude interest for America. You know, not all interests are either a 0 or 100. It's very important, but it's not an existential interest. The key is to keep the costs of being able to defend Taiwan for us under that 70% level. I'm using it as a kind of like an orienting point. But basically the idea being we need to make it reasonable for America to be able to defend Taiwan, and that involves focus and resources.
0: Well, thank you. What a great answer. So core American national security and economic interests, uh, adversaries, allies, and partners, and everyone in between are watching. And uh, you know the uh, the uh, the geek in me remembers in your great recent book Strategy of Denial, you talked about bandwagoning versus balancing. Anyone who's studying international relations understand that's where often um, less powerful powers look to see what others are doing, and and uh, just like you would on a playground, you decide who to who to who to side with, right? Did I oversimplify that too much? That's, no, that's, I mean that's, I think, that's
2: the core I think, idea. I think the playground. If if something is not relatable to the playground or something like exactly. it, then it's probably wrong yeah, because this yeah. is. Yeah. This is basic human strategic behavior and bandwagoning and balancing are kind of fancy terms yeah. for basically intuitive realities, but that's the level at which exactly.
0: we're operating. Mark, you have a deep experience uh, in the region, uh, as, as Bridge said, in, in the U.S. Navy and, you, and also working these issues in the U.S. Senate. Um, what would you add, subtract or, or tweak to what Bridge said about why an American in Nebraska, California or Maine should care about Taiwan?
1: Yeah, thanks. Well, first I'd attach myself to, to what Bridge said. I'd probably take the 70% and put it more closer to 80 or 90. That's, but probably that's from personal involvement for too long. What I would say is it's absolutely uh, critical to understand that already more than 50% of the world's GDP is in Asia and the United States. We are, you know, we don't always acknowledge this, but we are a Pacific power and the degree to which we can get, we are separated from access to those markets, the United States economy, GDP, the wealth of the country will suffer. And if we lose Taiwan, that is what's going to happen. And the reason we're going to lose it is first for the – there's military arguments that um, that Bridge made very well uh, about how it sits in, in the uh, first island chain. But also, it's not just that Japan and South Korea, the kind of bulwark of our relationships are going to question our credibility. Malaysia, Indonesia, the really growing economies down in Southeast Asia absolutely are going to throw in their security and economic, uh, you know, um, uh, partners of uh, of trust, that they're going to have to transfer to to China from us. They would like to align with us. They recognize the values of aligning with us. They will absolutely abandon that quickly if we abandon Taiwan. I'll also take another one. I know it's not a. This doesn't contribute to the ninety percent. May not contribute to the seventy percent. But at its heart, Taiwan is a self governing island. It has democratic elections. It has peaceful transfers of power between winners and losers. It is a democratic, you know, uh, a, a capitalist economy that we would be proud of. I mean, we helped design it. Yeah. It has thrived. It has, there's human rights there. There's, uh, you know, LBGQT rights. There's everything you would expect in a thriving democracy. These are all the things that aren't present in CCP-controlled China, in the Chinese Communist Party's uh, mainland China, And and at some core level. The United States is the country that makes sure that self-governing places like Taiwan continue to exist, whether it's Ukraine, Israel... Taiwan, the kind of beleaguered democracies of the world, the United States has, I believe, a level of responsibility.
0: I'm, I'm glad you, for my part, I'm glad you said that because I, I can, for what it's worth, I completely agree with Bridge on on kind of the realpolitik interests at stake, and no doubt. But I, I too, also see kind of, um, and, and and I'm not saying you don't, Bridge, and feel free to to add whatever you want. But I also see kind of a democratic principle ideal here as well, and you, and you hinted at a Bridge that you know here's a free people wanting to live free. And here is a the leading authoritarian power in the world, unlike any threat I would say that the United States has seen in terms of it, it, its ideology, its economic strength, and its military power, this is a, a st- seeking to establish some form of totalitarian oppression over people currently living free. I, I try to avoid hyper- hyperbole, but I think everything I just said there is true. Would either of you push back on that?
2: Well, I would just say, I mean, I don't certainly don't uh, disagree with with your description. I personally don't believe the United States should ju- as a general rule employ military force to for strictly, you know, to 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 support or Im- try to implant democracy elsewhere as a secondary or tertiary reason. It's certainly contributory. And but in a sense, I actually think at least in this theater when we think about it, um it's not so much of an issue because two things. One is whatever I think, I think Americans are much more likely to be sympathetic to a country that, you know, regardless of the social policies is democratic, treats people, you know, freely, unlike, you know, the the government in China. So that's important for Taiwan. Of course, other countries like Japan and South Korea and so forth. But also if you're really concerned about freedom in the world, you pretty much i think think about the way things the way i do because you know if you go back to like why did so many countries become democratic in the late 80s early 90s well it's pretty straightforward to Sam Huntington put it in the third way it's the collapse of the soviet union right if the united states is in an ascended position whether we push it or not, most countries are going to kind of go along in, in our direction. That's kind of basic geopolitics. And so the most important thing
0: we can do for freedom in the world
2: is to make sure that we succeed in the geopolitical and military contest vis-a-vis the People's Republic of
0: China. I love that. I mean, years ago, uh, when I was getting started, I wrote a, a piece in Parameters about uh, uh, interests and principles with respect to Saudi Arabia. And 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 I really enjoyed it because yeah, that's a country where there, some of these things seem to be in tension at times, if, if we're being polite. Um, but um, they're not always in conflict. Conflict, right. As you, I think you just said, right. Sometimes their their point, the arrows are pointing the same direction. And and I would without uh, I, I would suggest in Taiwan, maybe that's the case. Um, very good. Uh, so let me just transition now. I, again, I don't want to get too far into the details. But, Bridge, for, for listeners who, uh, who don't focus on these issues full time like the three of us do, um, I'd be interested in, uh, you know, what are kind of the major elements of longstanding U.S. policy toward Taiwan? You know, I'm thinking of the Taiwan Relations Act. I'm thinking of the uh, Joint Communications and Six Insurances. Certainly don't expect you to run through each of those. But kind of what's if – you, if you're willing, what's the 30-second summary of current longstanding U.S. policy toward Taiwan? On the political status of Taiwan,
2: we basically say – effectively, it's a kind of free self-governing entity, but we're not going to recognize it as an independent state. We And we don't take a position on the formal ultimate status of the island of Taiwan. This is part of the shift of recognition of the People's Republic of China in the early 1970s. But I would say from a security perspective, we've pretty much always been clear, certainly since the 1979 Taiwan Relations Act, but under President Reagan, uh, now even under President Biden, we've always been opposed to the use of force by China to resolve the issue of Taiwan, so I w- it's kind of a, it's a, it's a diplomatic sort of dance, and there's some leisure domain involved. But I think on the basic idea that we don't, we're not going to just sit by and allow China to run roughshod over Taiwan. That I think is a, is a, is a pretty consistent part of our, our policy.
0: Okay, that's and Mark. What would you add to that in terms of the kind of the core elements of longstanding U.S. policy toward this crisis?
1: So and, and what I'd say uh an unfortunate ramification of that, because I, I agree with the description, is that we tend to self-deter a lot. You know, in other words, it it tends to be uh you know it tends to be an approach of what can't we do, Vice, what can we do? And certainly as a uh senior military officer in the Pacific and then as a senior Senate staffer, I ran up against that multiple times. You'd have what seemed to be a very logical proposition to put forward. And uh our ability to self-deter is was uh, was pretty extreme, and and we're gonna we can no longer afford to do that. And that that's market, a luxury.
0: If I can interject, real quick, don't mean to interrupt, but just when you ter- use the term self-deter uh, for the listeners, you're saying we're not going to do something for fear of the reaction of the adversary. Exactly, so, and yeah. in the
1: case of the Chinese Communist Party, they are world class complainers, right? <laughs> they, uh, and uh, you know, mixed with a little wolf warrior, you know, yeah, uh, actions by the diplomats, you know, is this kind of constant. You know, complaint that the United States doesn't respect China. We offend China. We don't adhere to China's interpretation of how we should treat, uh, Taiwan. Uh, you know, and as a result, we deter ourselves. And this is through multiple administrations. Unfortunately, uh, this is, and we had the luxury, by the way, with a military strength, a military uh, balance with them, that we could allow a little self-deterrence in the 1990s, 2000s, even the middle of last decade. But, you know, about the time when the Obama administration finally saw the challenge around 2012, 2013, you know, the self-deterrence is now puts us in extremis in areas and it has for the last decade. And, uh, you know, there's uh, – you know, that that closing of the military gap yeah. – has really removed a lot of latitude in diplomacy and economic decision-making.
0: That's a perfect segue, actually, to exactly where I wanted to go and talking about what's happened to the balance of power in the Taiwan Strait, both between Beijing and Taipei, but also between Beijing and the United States. Um, so so maybe, Mark, coming back to you, um, you know, uh, we're many years removed from when we would send an aircraft carrier through the Taiwan Strait. A lot has changed since then. For those who, who again, have been busy with their lives, how is the balance of power in, in their eroded between the two primary actors
1: well thanks See, i was a commodore on the last aircraft carrier uh, <laughs> to the thailand straits and so yeah. that's 2008 i think yeah. and that was only because there was a massive storm uh that and then uh, <laughs> we were avoiding and the and the chinese over a military sale had just rejected our port visit into hong kong classy move and so um you know the you know what's happened since then is really the chinese and it goes much farther back from to the last uh China Taiwan Straits crisis in 95 yeah. 96. The Chinese sat back and said, We are going to build a capability and capacity to keep the United States outside the first island chain. And they have done five, five year plans since then 25 years of very consistent study, funding, and assessment of their ability to drive us out. And they've built, you know, anti ship ballistic missiles, um, good, uh, a large number of surface ships, large number of cruise missiles. Diesel submarines, beginning with the nuclear submarines, to drive particularly U.S. surface combatants and U.S. Navy and Air Force aircraft farther and farther back. And they have achieved a level of success that requires us to fight smart and fight with a lot of expensive high-end equipment now to move ourselves back in. And some equipment may never be able to move back in. It may just be too risky to bring it back in. Uh, and there's only a handful of areas where they really haven't been, uh, you know, terrifically successful. And one I would say is they did not focus on anti-submarine warfare mm. initially. As a result, our submarine fleet and our undersea warfare capability still pose a tremendous risk to the Chinese. But that's really. One of the few areas where I'd say the upcheck is with the United States inside the first island chain. And what that really means is we're fighting, you know, from distance Mm. and we're fighting from a, a position of risk.
0: So the bases we have in the region, uh, uh, in Japan, for example, are increasingly under missile risk. And and some people in Washington respond to that by saying, hey, let's move back, let's move back. But the more you move back, right, the harder it might be once the shooting starts to get back in in a timely way. Bridge, you know this better than anyone. Uh, What would you add to what Mark just said in terms of how the balance of power is eroded?
2: Well, look, I think, I mean, Mark's the expert and and you are as well, Brad. But I would just say, look, fundamentally – the the, the the line attributed to Napoleon, uh, it may be apocryphal, but Xi Jinping likes to use it, is, <laughs> you know, when China rises, the world will quake. And two centuries on, that has definitively happened. So what we're experiencing is the emergence of a great power rival that is of equivalent economic size to ourselves and is allocating something on the order of 2% of GDP or more to defense. Actually, less than we are, but has the advantages of focus, catch up, whether through theft or just mimicry. Uh, proximity to the problem, uh, basically a kind of a, a second mover, uh, sort of set of advantages. And they've been ruthlessly going after it for 25 years. And, um, they've made a lot of progress. And, and I think there are, you know, I, I, I still think we, we can do this, but we really require focus and, and resources and, and the willingness to make tough decisions. And what I'd say is, I mean, Mark's absolutely right that they have focused on pushing the Americans out. But increasingly, we're seeing them building a military that is designed to project power. And Mark was a commodore of an aircraft carrier. That They're building aircraft carrier battle groups. People say aircraft carriers right, are, right, are, right. Are, are, are passe. Well, apparently, the Chinese don't think so. And they're doing airdrops, you know, Normandy-style airdrops. They're doing helleborn invasions. They're building basing, a basing architecture all over the world. We know what we were able to do with that. So that's, that's a very significant... Uh, uh, a problem, but um, you know, I think I think the reality is we're not we're we're just gonna have to reckon with the scale of the problem and and focus accordingly.
1: Now Brad, if I could jump yeah, in on please. that, I, I agree with a lot of that. The uh, I do think I, I'm I don't mind their Investment in some and overse- some force protection capabilities because I, I think that's riskier for them and, and places their forces at risk. But I recognize if you're a Southeast Asian country, that makes you nervous, right? The, yeah, yeah, but the, I don't think
2: that's I mean, so. I mean, I think look, their first order of business. This is why I'm so. This is why Taiwan's so important is because their first order of business is subordinating Taiwan. And and by the way, you mentioned our bases in the region. I mean, according to Rand, this was even six or seven years ago. They'd be able to shut down all of our bases in Japan for like two months. Or more mm. and this is you know who knows what it is now and their their assessments. Our, our mutual friend Tom Shugart has pointed out that they continue to exceed the projections laid out in the Pentagon's authoritative China report every year. So that now they don't even need to use ballistic missiles mm. to range targets in Taiwan. They can cover the whole thing with rocket launchers, right? Which are cheaper and and more plentiful. So I think you know they're they're they're, sequ- they're building a sequential capability. Now sometimes I'm accused of of giving them all the benefit of the doubt, but I mean I think they're smart enough. That Taiwan is their leading scenario. And what they're going to use those forces for, coupled together, is the ability to achieve political outcomes. I mean, I think if they're going to go after Taiwan, well, maybe they're going to put a, a gun to Marcos's head, the new president of the Philippines, and say, don't implement the, the, the defense agreement with the United States to redeploy US forces in the Philippines. That would be a really big problem for us, especially if Taiwan would fall. So I think, you know, we could be looking at a situation if we don't play our cards right maybe within a decade, certainly within the next, where we could be thinking, you know, <laughs> there are Chinese carrier battle groups in the Central Pacific and Southeast Asia that we're having, to, and we don't have necessary. I mean, they're in the Solomon Islands, so they're going to be contesting our logistics. We don't have the logistics fleet to support our Navy anymore. We can't even repair ships damaged in, conf- in combat, according to uh, one of your successors in, in the Navy our uh, firmament, uh, you know, it's just describing reality. So, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I Again, I think we can do this, we America and our allies, but we got to take this really seriously. So I agree think with we're doing that,
1: Brad. Bridget, I agree with with all of that, and I agree with the risk from China. One of the things I would say is I still firmly believe in Ford stationing forces. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I go back to a. Uh, a 2018 national defense strategy written by someone <laughs> at this table <laughs> uh, that, yes. that emphasized you're, you're the importance. At, at yeah. Defense. Which has yeah.
0: stood the test of time, yeah. I'd yeah. say. And, but it emphasized you. blunt yeah. and
1: contact forces, right? And so from my, for my position, the contact and blunt forces are really those forward station and forward deployed forces at the time. Um, you know, we're going to, we are going to lose places like Kadena are undefendable. I get it. That's an air base in Okinawa in the very south of Japan. The bases you get farther up are more and more defendable as less and less things can range them, but still. Very difficult. Guam, less, slightly less depends difficult. depends what assumptions still, you
0: make about air and missile defenses. That's but, right. Yeah, <laughs> right. About,
1: about whether we, so I guess what I'd say is, yeah, I'm for forward station forces and forward deployed forces, as long as we continue to make the investments in defending those forces. Um, I do think we need those. And most importantly, we need those to keep the allies there. You know, our hard work in Japan, particularly during the Trump administration, but continuing during the Biden administration has changed Japan appreciably. Uh, when I was a Commodore, when I was a Captain in the Navy, you know, they agreed that they might possibly allow us to operate from their bases if we never said what we were doing in a Taiwan <laughs> scenario, no matter how much battle damage you came back with. By the time I was a, 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 a strike group commander and admiral there, they agreed you can operate from our bases. By the time I uh, left PACOM during the Trump administration, you know, as, as a, uh, as the J-3, Uh, We were at the point where they were quietly asking us, how could we play in this fight? And when working with Senator McCain, they're now at the point, you know, Abe said it specifically, we'll be in this
0: fight. This dramatically eroding balance of power has uh, been observed by many people, including those in Tokyo, I'd say.
1: But were we to leave Japan and not be forward stationed there and forward deployed there, not have our families there, not be fully committed to this – I think we get a different answer. I
0: would, I would argue that if you do that, if you like, it, this relates to the the Guam work that you and I have done, Mark, in terms of, oh, Guam's under threat. So, you know, let's pull back. Well, I mean, how far do we pull back? Hawaii, West, I mean, I'm using a straw man there a little bit, but I mean, if you're not forward positioned, I would argue you're more likely to get the aggression uh, in the first place. And secondly, we can't assume like we have in the past that we're going to be able to get our forces to the point of conflict in a timely way to prevent some sort of fate of complete or other or strike. Ridge, I you- mean
2: to me this is this is both yeah. both yeah. neither yeah. no, it's not yeah. either yeah. or there, yeah. there's a tendency yeah. in the de- in defense discussion to say well we should you know the blunt forces can be forward or they can get forward very quickly but or we should be operating you know intercontinental ballistic missiles right, from the, right. you know, right. the United States or Alaska and say, well, why, I want to do both because, I mean, we're dealing with a, a state that is of equivalent economic size for the first time in our history as international power. So let's take it seriously. So I want to present, you know, a strategy people would say, I want to present China with dilemmas. They won't be able to solve because, you know, let's let's say we pull out of all of our of our bases forward. Well, first of all, as you both pointed out, rightly, the allies are going to say, well, I guess I'm going to be yeah. fought over and maybe yeah. I'll hope to be relieved, you know, Philippines, 1940 style, that doesn't sound so good. Maybe I'll cut a deal, because that's that's my less bad option. But also, if the Chinese know, oh, I don't have to deal with these forces forward, I know I have to deal with the long-range problem, well, now I've narrowed my problem. And in a sense, I think we want to take advantage of, I mean, I'm skeptical of these arguments that the defense or the offense is dominant. Or I should say, I don't feel that I know enough about military operational stuff. It's not my to say whether, but it does. I think a prepared defense. I mean, I'm, I'm influenced a lot by Dave Johnson. I think I'm sure a friend of all of ours at the RAND Corporation, been writing fantastic stuff for a long time, but certainly in the, in the context of the Ukraine war, but pointing out that well positioned forces that, that are key to the political objective you know, and then can enable those kind of, you know, roundhouse, you know, the B-2s, the B-21s, the B-52s, long range missiles. But if, you, you know, if you're thinking about Japan, there's there's offensive benefits to forces forward because they, those guys, you know, Marines roaming around or army soldiers that can fire missiles at ships. But also that presents a big problem for the Chinese because they're going to have to dig those forces out. And that's, that, that puts us in a better position that contributes to deterrence. Mark, you
0: know, a lot of time no, that's excellent. Mark, a lot of times when, uh, uh people talk about uh chinese aggression against taiwan they envision kind of a d-day style amphibious landing but uh we know at this table that uh, it could take different forms would you be willing to just kind of lay out the three or four kind of different ways that military aggression toward taiwan could unfold
1: well well sure uh you know and i, I think that a d-day you know amphibious assault or airborne assault is, is the last uh, step i i think well before that they'll attempt to use uh what, you know, called gray zone operations or operations below the use of force, uh, information operations against the Taiwanese. They're running those now every day, but really accelerated. They could they could bring that up to cyber infrastructure attacks. You know, bring probably I think realistically bring the electrical power grid, water distribution systems to their knees in Taiwan, and then um, then they can start to move into things that are a mix of use of force and and gray zone operations like blockades. You know, claim some kind of uh, problem with how. Uh, Taiwan is handling trade or investment and begin to either blockade or quarantine, uh, Taiwan ports. And then I think find the last step before any kind of like, if you had an escalatory plan to a, a large scale invasion and not just a prompt invasion, that last step would probably be some kind of like significant cruise and ballistic missile attack to really damage and, uh, and, uh, deter, you know, damage and, uh, and disrupt Taiwan's military forces. And the amount of rounds that could be brought to bear on Taiwan is really on – it's nothing that Ukraine or, or any any power has seen and, 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 and any uh, military has seen in the, in, in the last 60 years. I mean, it is just – it is really – the, the mix of accuracy and volume that China can pour into Taiwan will have a significant effect on them.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, um, just on that note, I mean, I think we run the risk of analogizing a little bit too much the Ukraine situation. I mean, you know, R- Russia, I think, is about four times the population size of Ukraine and is obviously, an you know, a large economy, I think number 11 or 12, but definitely far from the forefront of, you know, global economic development. China is on the order, I think, of 100 to 1, you know, or 50 to 1, the population size of Taiwan not to mention huge um uh, you know ge- geographic advantages ukraine is a uh, a very large country so easy to get into very difficult to secure easy relatively easy to resupply because he- long land borders with nato taiwan is a lonely island that's far from you know us and, and its allies um, and China is the forefront of global technological development. I mean, in a lot of in a lot of areas, you know, more papers on AI or whatever you know, pick your indicator. I would just say I, I'm more worried about the direct assault because I think the, the 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 logic that Mark is talking about it doesn't work well for China. So, like, I, I always try to put myself try to be a ruthless jerk for 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 America. So in doing that, I try <laughs> to think, well, what's the most ruthless way I could think about it if, if I'm in our enemy's shoes? And I say to myself, my biggest, you know. I think what Putin was right about in his abominable invasion of, of Ukraine, what he was analytically right about it is that he was not going to bring the Ukrainians to their knees short of the use of decisive military force. He was not going to hoodwink them or gray zone them. He tried all that stuff. And then that's the same thing that's going on in Taiwan. They're not signing up for it. And they've seen what's happening in Hong Kong, right? So they're not going to get it unless they have a gun in their face, basically. Um, and I think the the, the problem for China is if you're going to deliver decisive military force, you need to have as much surprise as possible. I mean, to simplify a little bit. And the the the, the, the sort of slow incremental approach basically says to, hey, America, we're thinking about this. We're moving along. And, uh, and by the way, we're starving children on Taiwan and we're like conducting massive missile attacks. So we're pretty evil. Whereas I think if I'm thinking in China, I'm thinking to myself, let me do this surgically quickly. I'll control the information flow and I'll give the Americans no option and they'll have limited amount of warning and that's I think part of the response to the Pelosi visit was building in advantages where we have less of a sense of what's coming because they're normalizing some of the indicators we might may not look to and that's the thing if they get in there and they've wrapped it up in 72 hours or two weeks and you know we're kind of saying ah oh, yeah we're still kind of deliberating and we we're, we're going to do something about it but then it's like up oh, it, it's been wrapped up too late that's a that's a that's a that's a pretty attractive theory of victory if I'm China
1: no, I agree. I mean, that's what I would do if I was a Red Force commander. I would say this: that uh, CCP political desire, though, is to take Taiwan cleanly without a lot of uh, a lot of damage. So, I think both the ballistic missile attack version and a large scale invasion place TMC, TSMC factories. Not to put too sharp a point on it, which S-S-C. are what? Which are, the, what are those? that? That is uh, the Taiwan Semiconductor yeah. Manufacturing yeah. Corporation, leading producer of seventy le- yeah, percent yeah. mm-hmm. worldwide. Yeah. Um, so. My point on this, though, is that I, I do think if I were a military planner, I would go for the uh, the prompt strike. If I was a political leader, I, I may be trapped into other solutions. But I, we need to prepare for the worst case, which yeah. is the prompt strike, the no warning.
0: Just a, a few interjections here that I think are relevant to what we're discussing before. Moving you mentioned the Pelosi trip. I want to get hear from both of you on that. But you know, we've talked about, you know, massive economic growth in China. How have they used that wealth? They've used that wealth to undertake the most significant military modernization effort in the history of the People's Republic of China. As their military becomes more powerful, they're behaving more aggressively, not just in the seas and skies around above Taiwan, in the South China Sea and the border with uh, India. Big surprise, right? When we look at history, when <laughs> Uh, countries become more wealthy. Uh, uh, economic interest, what follows economic interest, military power follows it. And often, people, when they have a stick, they will use it. Um, and all indications are pointing that way. Now, if people had heard us talking like this, maybe February 23rd, they'd say, "Come on, you know, you're sending downright 20th century." Well, newsflash, you know, hard power still matters, and there still are people that are willing to use it to accomplish their political objectives. And and I, I agree with you, Bridge, that. You can overplay the uh, the lessons learned uh, from Ukraine, but one that Mark and I have written about is that um, you know, it's better to take steps uh, before aggression to prevent them. Uh, and I know you agree with that. Uh, and by taking those steps, you can either prevent it or put the the good guys and gals in a better position when it does come. And to me, that's one of the leading takeaways from the, the horrific events uh, that we're seeing in Ukraine. Um, is this a next year thing? Is it is it a potential Chinese attack? Is it next year? I mean, there's you you and I know, but the three of us know, but the listeners may not. This is there's. The cottage industry about predicting when this will happen. You know, Admiral Davison, the former commander of Indo-Pacific, said a year or two ago, maybe in, in the next six years or so, people say this decade, some people say 2025. If I'm am if I'm hearing us and finding this persuasive, am I worried about this next year or next decade? When when is this threat? Well, um it, bottom line up front, I think we're in
2: the window where it where it could happen and will increasingly be a risk, but I I don't I don't I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean that's the thing is Here's here's how I'll put it. I don't make predictions. I have no idea what's in Xi Jinping's head. But when I look at the set of factors, it seems to me that it could quite plausibly be a rational and optimizing decision for him to do it, for China to do it. And that's what worries me. And I don't think we should put ourselves in a position where we are allowing China to have a good basis for thinking it's a good idea. Now, why do I say that? Well, if I'm right that that they're going to need you know, a decisive military victory over Taiwan in order to really secure this thing, um, then, you know, they're going to want to have the military advantage. Um, they're going to want to have, have as much, you know, edge as they possibly can. Well, and I mentioned my our friend Tom Shugart here already, but Tom has pointed out in some important testimony last year before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and, and, and other places that, you know, a lot of the Chinese military developments over the last 25 years are bearing fruit right now. And a lot of what America's talking about, if you listen to our senior military leader and defense officials, they're often talking about 2035. Look, the long run is really important, but I analogize it to like acute heart disease. Like you're lucky if it's a long-term problem. You got to take care of it right now. And so if you're Xi Jinping or the Chinese leadership, not to personalize it, are the Chinese leadership and you say, well, the Americans are going to have like a hundred new heavy bombers and a lot more attack submarines and cool new munitions, and they're going to figure out AI and we'll be lucky if that happens, but that's what <laughs> we're trying. But right now- we're kind of up a creek and the administration's not ex- spending more on defense and yada 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 well maybe I'll do it even if I'm not 100% if I'm at 85% certainty but I know that's going down over time that's one factor second factor is um Xi Jinping's um personal uh you know the the man clearly cares about a lot a lot about Taiwan he explicitly links uh the fate of Taiwan with what he calls the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation that's his central project and if we learn something from Ukraine, it's like, hey man, you know, <laughs> these guys who are getting older and are looking at mortality, maybe they're saying, I want to be the one. I want to, you know, this. Sh- so, so there's, so there's that too. And I think it also gets back to, you know, if I'm right that they're not going to resolve the Taiwan issue without decisive force because Taiwan's drifting away from them, and nobody wants to live in a Xi Jinping's paradise, right? Okay, and we know they care a lot about Taiwan, but also it's not just a question of bringing back in a quote unquote lost province. It's also if they are going to achieve a dominant, preeminent position in the world, they have to break apart the American-led alliance structure in Asia, in particular. This is something, and this is you know not to be sort of pretentious, but like you know Clausewitz, the famous Prussian military theorist, at some level there's got to be a decisive standoff. Now that does not need to be a war necessarily. What I think the win without fighting that people often talk about, though, is if everybody knows what would happen, that the Chinese would kick our tails and, you know, take everybody else to the cleaners, they're going to cut a deal. So that's win without fighting. And so if I'm, again, that's like, so I don't know. I mean, maybe Xi Jinping's too worried about the macroeconomic picture. Maybe he's worried about other things. But then I'd say to myself, let's look at some indicators. Okay, well, they're shutting down cities In China to exercise social control that would be consistent with a war footing they're stopping communist party members from having foreign bank accounts they're moving to something called dual circulation which is designed to minimize western leverage over the Chinese economy and maximize their leverage over us which assumes that they think they're going to get sanctions and then they're launching the largest nuclear weapons buildup in memory which they already had a nuclear deterrent, so this is kind of what you'd need if you thought you were going to fight the Americans. So again, I don't make predictions. I don't know. I, God willing, I'm 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 over exaggerating. I hope I'm I am, but I don't I don't know what they're going to do. But I don't think we should be in a position where we're relying on some ineffable, un, inscrutable, like Xi Jinping is going to be cautious because he doesn't want to tank the global economy. Maybe the war is the way that he secures dominance of the global economy.
0: Mark, where do you come down on this?
1: So uh, I agree. Uh, uh, violently with what uh, with, what Bridge said. And, and what I would say is, I, I'd give one other example, Hong Kong. I mean, you don't even have to leave Asia to see what when Xi Jinping decides to settle something, <laughs> yeah. how it settles. Um, but I would take this and I'd say, what year is it going to be? I don't know, but I can affect it. We can affect it. Mm-hmm. The United States and its allies and partners can affect it. A- and we can affect it to the left by doing nothing or doing the wrong thing, or we can affect it to the right. In other words, push it left, past center, the... Left sooner right later. That's exactly. right. We can yeah. make it later by taking the right action. And, and there's just such a massive, and and Bridge had a good article on this recently, say, do mismatch between the rhetoric we hear from our leadership and the actions we take in our budgeting. And this is in the context of an $800 billion defense budget. There's enough budget to move this problem to the right, but we literally miss the opportunity to do it. And that's probably the most frustrating thing uh, for people like you and I, and we've both written on this quite a bit.
2: Yeah, if I could I mean that that's the thing is like this is a solvable problem. And Mark, you and I have been talking about this serious Brad, we've been talking about it too, which is to say, like, let's narrow the problem. And that's like a lot of what I've been trying to do with my book and stuff like that is like you know the strategy of denial. It's like, look, we don't need to march into Beijing. We don't need to unseat Xi Jinping. Obviously, I I hope that for the sake of the people in China, they don't live under this you know dictatorship. But that's not our goal. Our goal at the end of the day, if China needs to have decisive military force to achieve its goals, if we can deny them that high standard, if they can't go downtown and land in Taipei and sustain operations. And put their foot on on you know on the Taiwanese, then we in a sense win. I mean that's a little sim- simplistic, but that's a relatively low standard. And if we can do that for Taiwan, by definition geographically, we can do it for Japan, Australia, et cetera. And that is something that we can solve. I mean, Mark and I were talking about this before. Dave Ockmanic, our mutual friend, uh, you know, is a really one fantastic analyst at the Rand Corporation. We could probably do this for $20 billion, 50 billion, which you know is a lot of money. But we're spending $800 billion in the defense budget, let alone trillions of dollars on the the rest of the economy. And I'm thinking to myself, wouldn't you just like throw – I mean, maybe I'm wrong. But like, you don't – nobody knows if I'm wrong. That's the thing. There there are people who (laughs) who like act as if they know that I'm wrong. And it's like, I don't know I'm right. I don't know – you don't know I'm right. You don't know what's in Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping could change his mind tomorrow. You know what I mean? So like, but why wouldn't we kind of put some coverage down on this risk? and what i hear from the administration and its ad, its defenders and stuff it's like ah we can manage all of this and it's this i don't i don't quite under, i don't understand it because it doesn't make sense to me like it's just it's 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 asking for trouble and there's so much money being pumped into the economy and other stuff why wouldn't and this you know i don't know we could build more ships those are good jobs and stuff like that but i just to me it's like Penny wise, pound foolish. On this, on this
0: front, I want to go right at that uh, bridge because uh, for the listeners, you wrote a, a great piece in Foreign Affairs on published on August 10th, um, entitled "America Must Prepare for a War Over Taiwan." And you wrote, uh, quoting you here, "That Biden administration's actions to fill a military that could actually deny a Chinese invasion do not appear to match its rhetoric." What's kind of the, um, the your your bottom line indictment there in terms of the words and deeds mismatch? Well, it's
2: an it's an indi- uh, indictment's almost the right, way, or it's like. It's more like a grand jury indictment Because I was like I was like testing Like I was writing it Almost as like a prompt or a challenge to the administration to say why I'm wrong. Because the administration, as Mark indicated, has been saying, I mean, the president himself said three times he's going to come to Taiwan's defense. The Pentagon talks about Taiwan a lot. The State Department says it's a rock solid relationship. And
0: those statements by the president are are, are inconsistent with the long-term policy of strategic ambiguity where we've been deliberately uh, vague in terms of whether we would do just that. And yet, here comes the president of the United States. And when he speaks, that's kind of policy saying we will, right? Which is not really- right. I mean, I think at this point, everybody thinks our credibility is right. tied to Taiwan. Yeah. So like, I mean, to me, that's almost an
2: academic question yeah, at this point. Yeah. Like they, his staff off the record or like on background walk back, the president's like, okay, well, we all saw the president say that three times. <laughs> and by the way, it's consistent with what the rest of the administration's actually saying yeah, in a more measured yeah, form. Yeah. So, okay. So our, our is on the line. Our credibility matters. I'm not a credibility fetishist. Like I think we can get carried away, but it does matter here. And so I'm saying, okay. And the, the Pentagon is saying China's our priority challenge. What they call Taiwan the pacing scenario, as in this is what we're going to prioritize. And yet, okay, like I'm looking at it from the outside and I'm saying we should see more action because we're dealing again with a peer, a great power economy. And it's like, okay, are we spending more money on defense? No. Like, in fact, it's below the rate of inflation. Mac Eaglin and, and John Ferrari had a piece on this the other day in the journal that was pretty, pretty tough. I mean, it's like, and, um, you know, there's been other work by Eric Chewing and McKinsey and, and others. So, so we're not spending a lot more money. We're not like, okay, maybe you don't need to if you completely overhaul the force if you go from having a bunch of tanks to having 500 submarines. But they're not doing that and there are very they're strong there are just inherent difficulties given our industrial base, but that isn't happening either. Okay, are we uh, you know, getting out of the other regions? Are we stopping everything else that we're doing to husband our power? No, we're actually increasing forces in Europe. You look at those and then you could say the fourth the fourth one is are they like really hammering the allies to do more quickly? Nope, you know, like actually not not really at all. In fact, if anything, they're probably taking the the pressure off. So it's like, okay, well, those are the four things you could basically do, and we're not really doing any of them. Like you could say, "Hey, Bridge, you're wrong. We can't we can't reduce our forces in Europe, so we got to d- double the defense budget." I, I personally don't I don't think that's realistic, but like okay, at least that's consistent, right? You know, but like that they're not doing any of the, those things, and that to me is sort of mystifying. So I don't even understand. And the really disturbing thing is that I wrote the article as a challenge. I sent it to a bunch of retired <laughs> senior defense officials, yeah, including kind Democrats, of res- kind of and they were all like, You're completely correct. <laughs> so, that's the thing that really. So, and I was like, Oh, bleep. Yeah. Because I would want yeah. to be wrong. Yeah. yeah. I want there to be some secret master plan that I don't know right. about, but this, there's obviously not. So
1: there's, no, there's not yeah. a secret master plan. Yeah. Okay, Mark, you Mark agrees too. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, yeah, let good. me pick up on this, though. I mean, I, I'll even go, I mean, I'm not a spendthrift or anything, but I think. For one to two billion dollars of targeted funding on the, on the right munitions, we can A, improve our deterrence capability and capacity against, China, you know, what China sees. If anyone knows the capability of our force, uh, better than us, it's the Chinese. <laughs> uh, and then, but the second part of it is, uh, It actually will give us war-winning capability and capacity. And the frustration for me is this was easily seeable. Brad, you know I've been writing about this for three years now. There are weapon systems that we buy at very near what's called low-rate initial production. In other words, the minimum to keep the line going or a small amount. The Senate and the House add money in every year like it's a game. Yeah. Well, the problem we got now is Ukraine has exposed – uh, one advantage of Ukraine and uh, you and I have talked about this uh, bridge is the is that uh, is that the um, we are not in a position to rapidly re up our munitions purchases. We've spent we have expended and the Ukrainians expended seven or eight years worth of uh, Javelin procurement in about nine months. So now we, the Ukrainians, the Europeans who gave the Ukrainians weapons, the Taiwanese who need these same Javelins, all need Javelins. And we've got to like do new industrial policy. And eight months into this challenge, the administration's like, "We're on it. We're not going to tell you what it is. We're not going to show you our cards." Industry's a little nervous. You know, we got to do it. We have the same problem in our munitions with China and Taiwan. There are systems called the long-range uh, anti-ship uh, missile. Elrasm is its name. The naval strike missile, NSM. The maritime strike Tomahawk. The standard missile six. These are critical weapons where we're buying too few and we haven't made the deals with the Raytheons and Lockheed Martins and General Dynamics, Whoever's building it, I don't really, I'm, I'm industry agnostic, but whoever's doing it has to be, have a trust that the U S is willing to spend more multi-year buys of these weapons. That's the signal. And literally for, you know, for low billions. You can send a strong signal and have a better force, and this gets it exactly. Bridgehead it right. We this administration and and uh, and I think the Obama as well focused on twenty thirty five. The problem is our adversaries focused on 2025, twenty twenty five, twenty twenty years. was resolve
0: long before then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, and and you both know, but I mean, uh, I, I would go back to at least to the twenty eleven Budget Control Act and what became known as sequestration and the uh, the self inflicted wound we imposed on our, do- our own defense industry. And you, know, the second you say defense industry, people think of President Eisenhower's comment and they start to make them the bad guy. But as you know, someone who wore the uniform and and, and relied on uh, well made helicopters for a while. Um, I'm a fan of uh, a powerful effective American defense industry, and listeners need to remember that the Department of Defense, by and large, does not produce its own weapons. And so we're going to win or lose future wars based on two things, the quality and training of our people and the quality of our weapons. And those weapons come from our defense industry. And so I don't give a darn about the bottom line or this or that defense company, but I do care about our troops being better armed than their adversaries.
2: Well, I think that's exactly right, and I think, I mean, also, I mean, I care a lot about not just, you know, benefiting a small portion of of the American populations, as I know you guys do too. But like, if you're if you're concerned about excessive, you know, conglomeration or rent seeking in the defense industry, well. You know, change the rules or the structure of the defense industry, but that doesn't change the need to have a really strong defense industry. Exactly. Because I think, as Mark is pointing out, I wrote in the piece with my our good friend Alex Gray the other uh, last month. You know, we we need it, and I think that, you know, if 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 Russia and Ukraine need um, so much production uh, in this context, imagine what we're dealing with with China. I mean, the the the, the stat I always like to use is, uh, or or the the story. Um, is, you know, when Japan attacked the United States in December of 1941, the United States was the world's largest industrial power and the world's, by far the world's largest shipbuilding, uh, you know, state now that's China. (laughs) So like, you know, and I mean, defense industrial jobs are, I think a lot of them are really good jobs. They don't necessarily involve a college education. You know, they're high paying They're, I mean, so, okay, great. So let's, let's do that. And why, why? Why allow, and again, if you don't want X, X, you know, big defense prime, then put something in there that allows new, new entrants to get involved or whatever. I don't know what that is. exactly, But it's like, we need a strong defense <laughs> it, industry.
0: It, exactly. And none of this is quick, right? Because yeah. the, the decisions we're making today on science and technology programs, on research, development, test and evaluation, that's going to determine what our children or grandchildren are using generations from now. I mean, when I first started flying, I was flying UH-1 helicopters that flow, that you went back in the historical records and they, they, they. They took shots during Vietnam. I mean, they literally saw combat in Vietnam. The first, and and uh, and so what we're doing today will affect uh, the security of our children and grandchildren for decades to come. Uh, and and on, at one point on the uh, on Ukraine, right? The, the administration has used what's called presidential drawdown authority, as you both know, but. This is where we're literally taking, uh, weapons in our own arsenal in the department of defense arsenal and shipping those to Ukraine. I've supported that because I think the stakes are so high, but we have to monitor it carefully to make sure that we don't go too low and that we can resupply ourselves quickly. And because of, as I started to say earlier, the budget control act, insufficient defense budgets through the years. And what I would call a habitual reliance on continuing resolutions where we copy and paste last year's appropriation for this year, ignoring what's changed in the world, uh, We've made this much much harder. Um, so those are some key things. I um, wanted to start to move to conclude here, but there's a few last things that I, I want to ask both of you. And the main one is, and I'll go to you first, Mark. What are you guys going to be watching going forward? There's some activity on Capitol Hill, um, Mark. That I'd love to hear from you on. And 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 just for the listeners, what should they be watching uh, going forward to, to see whether Taiwan's doing what they should be doing, whether Congress and the Pentagon are doing what they should be doing, and what should they be warily watching uh, from Beijing as well?
1: Well, for, I'll start with Congress and say that uh, next Wednesday we're marking up the Taiwan Policy Act um, in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I uh, look, this is a very important uh, provision that needs to be uh, edited and then approved. Uh, and, when I, and I'll talk about the approved part. There's a section in there called Title II uh, of that Act that lays out the the key elements of a of a, a strong U.S. Taiwan um uh military cooperation uh for you know in there is the idea of doing of the u.s doing independent assessments of the u.s and taiwan doing joint assessments of the u.s and taiwan exercising together and then um a foreign military financing program of about 4.5 billion over five years uh, a loan program that i think came from uh, senator graham of about two billion um a war reserve uh, stockpiling of about uh, 100 million dollars a year, very similar to what we do with Israel, uh, another kind of beleaguered democracy that could use weapons on on short notice in a conflict. Those kind of elements are are in that section in that title too, and that's critical. I, I'll just say quickly. Right now, we in Taiwan cannot fight. Um, you know, in a coordinated way, we would fight deconflicted, which is you go left, I go right. You know, the next level is coordinated, where you go left and I go right at the exact same time to maybe influence the enemy. Then you have to get to integrated and then unified. We need to the one country that knows how deconflicted we are, you know, how weak our alliances is, is. China understands the U.S. and Taiwan cannot fight together. Um, but we need to raise that through exercises. That is a very low cost. Opportunity to increase our deterrent capability and then our war-winning capability. If we had to have it, uh, you know, when, when it comes to us and Taiwan, two plus two needs to equal five, not three, and uh, and right now it equals three. So to me, that Taiwan Policy Act, there's some parts in it about with, with sanctions and some other things about how we look at the Taiwan embassy uh, uh, facility here and the in the U.S. facility in Taiwan. I, I don't want any poison pills in this bill. We just need to do the blocking and tackling of, a, of of this relationship. Get that through. We can fight the poison pills I, I, over the next year.
0: That's so so much great content there, uh, and and you know well from your your time in the Navy, Mark. Uh, but uh, the. Uh, you know, I, I talked about the the quality of our people and their training, and then the weapons. And if 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 we don't do the military planning in advance, right, as you know well, and we don't conduct the exercises together, we will obviously be less effective. But we'll actually have some instances potentially a fratricide where Taiwan and U.S. forces are are, are killing each other, um, and yet. The uh, there is no prohibition that I'm aware of in law to doing that, and the reason we haven't done that has been entirely self-imposed, uh, and and I would argue is maybe a relic of an earlier time when the threat was less less um, severe. Bridge, what would you what are you watching going forward? and any comments on what Mark said?
2: Yeah, well, no, I mean, I just I think Mark's sort of the the approach is like there's a lot of debate about, for instance, whether we should abandon our our pol- diplomatic posture on Taiwan. I think there's too much discussion on that. We got to solve a practical problem, which is be able to deny ensure that 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 Taiwan and, and more indirectly, Japan and Australia are able to deny a Chinese attack, primarily an invasion, whether it's ARC or both, uh, but also a blockade. And that's just kind of nuts and bolts and pulling the levers in the right places. And then we can argue about long-term economic competition and the nature of our relationship to Taiwan until the cows come home. But you know, I always analogize it to like cops in the neighborhood. You know, if you're in a neighborhood and you're worried about law and order, you're not worried about in making business or walking your kids to school. You're worried about your, your personal and your family's safety. So you focus on law and order. But once you get law and order right, then you kind of don't think about law and order so much. Then you're like, I'm going to invest in a business. We're going to, you know, the town's going to build a pool, you know, whatever. We're going to have a a fair at the school, whatever it is. Right. But that's the kind of situation we, we got to be like laser focused on making sure that this law and order piece is right. So that, that I, I, I think is, is, is right. And I do think there's gotten, you know, more of that. What am I looking at, um, and looking for the problem with China is to the point I made earlier, if, if I'm right, kind of thinking, and I approach this problem, you know, kind of deductively, um, then they really want to make it as much of a surprise as possible. So they are not going to give us much warning. And in fact, they've already warned us. I mean, they've said many times that like, so, I mean, I don't think we, we cannot claim to have been surprised at the strategic level. And then I also say, well, a lot of the things I would look for have already happened. And I mentioned a few of them, dual circulation, the nuclear buildup, the financial stuff, you know, social lockdowns, crackdowns internally. So that. That worries me. Yeah, yeah. Here's the other thing I would want to see. Okay, so, and again, this is deductive. Like, Taiwan seems like other side of the world. There are a lot of things that are important, you know. Uh, it can't be that important. But it, it, when you think about it in this context, if you think like, okay, China is the biggest country that we've been rivaled with since, you know, 150 years. We're the two largest countries in the world. Asia is the world's the cockpit of the world's theater and or the cockpit of the world's economy. And Taiwan is the critical, valuable. And you said 80, 90, I say seventy. Actually, a a number of people, particularly from the region, put it at, at, at closer to where you are. That maybe maybe this thing is lost if we lose Taiwan. I think that's not true, but you know I should just put that out there. So I'd say, okay, if we lose a war over Taiwan, it will be a major disaster. Like I think it will be recoverable, but but actually part of the reason we global ramifications. absolutely. I mean, in Europe, in in the the Middle East. I mean, we'll have to pull out of Europe in the Middle East. I think basically, because at that point people are going to be like, "There's no way I can stick with the Americans." And the Chinese have shown they're superior, and now they have a superior position. So, are the Japanese going to give us access? Let alone the Philippines? You know, I mean, forget about places like Vietnam or Thailand. You know, we're going to be we're going to have a toehold. And by the way, country place in the Central Pacific that we had, you know, our. You know, forefathers or whatever. You're, you're literally your four marks the descendant of a Midway veteran and stuff. Uh, but, uh, you know, the Solomons and these kinds of my family was in the Atlantic, but the, the, uh, the, you know, they had to fight over, it. that's what we're going to be talking about. And so, the, you know, and, 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 and look, Afghanistan ended, ended very badly. We pulled out of Vietnam. Iraq is a mixed story, et cetera, et cetera. But none of these were direct clashes that would define the future of the world. We have actually never lost a great war. But losing a war to China, even indirectly, because we just don't even put up a fight, that would be the worst military defeat in American military in American history. And so, uh, I mean, I'm just going to be—I'm going to put it straight. Does the president of the United States is he behaving in that way that we are on the on the verge of possibly losing a, a great war for the first time in our history? It sure doesn't look like it. I mean, I know he gave a speech pretty recently that where he talked about threats. I disagreed with it very strongly. But how about? The, the cost of losing a war to China in the world's decisive theater. How about talking about that with, with its, a consequent degree of passion? And then people would say, oh, I, well, I guess $50 billion sounds like a deal to avoid that from happening. And then we can argue about our domestic problems, which are real, uh, you know, until the cows come home. But if you want to fix the social media companies, if you have problems about the way the United States is governed, I can assure you it's going to be a lot worse if China is the
1: dominant power in the world.
2: We can be absolutely sure.
0: Well said. Mark, clo- any closing
1: comments? Well, That was a great strategic review. So I, I'm going to take a tactical again. You asked me to look <laughs> at the National Defense go. Authorization Act is coming in again. Yep. Um, you know, you, you and I have worked on these. We've supported friends, uh, who have worked. And there's a lot of good addition. Once again, the House and the Senate are having to make important additions and we need to make sure they carry through. There's more munitions in there. There's, um, things to help defend Guam. Uh, there's a, a kitty. Uh, that I think Representative Gallagher put in of almost a billion dollars for IndoPaycom. Um, you know, so there's a very much more tactical level than, than, than Bridge's thoughts there. But I will tell you that if we do not make these small investments now, we will not be able to achieve the strategic obde- objectives that, uh, that Bridge lays out. And so I think our, our actions have to match our words and our, our rhetoric, uh, and, uh, you know, the, my, my, I supported Speaker Pelosi's visit. You know, I think the timing was rough, but I supported it. I don't support the post visit performance of not immediately coming back and saying we need an economic deal with Taiwan. We need to invest in, uh, in the Taiwanese, uh, military capability and capacity. We need to build a better alliance. Those words have not come out of her lips after that visit there. And there's no way she didn't hear that from President Tsai. I know that's the Taiwanese. The Taiwanese are very clear-eyed about the th- the threat they face and it's very disappointing that when the, when you get this after this risky move which I think was the right one it is completely wasted if you don't match your rhetoric With your action,
0: well said. And and you know, I I, we've we've talked about gray zone warfare, hybrid warfare, and we've said. uh, I I think Mark, you and I agree, and and maybe Bridge, you do as well, that Beijing would rather get Taiwan without military force, but um, they'll use military force if necessary. And that's kind of where I come down. Uh, And and yet, and we have this idea that we're either at war or peace. But you know, my sense is that that Beijing has been in some form of competition or war with us all along, and we've been kind of asleep on the gladiator floor. They're picking our pocket. We're waking up now. We're defending ourselves and suddenly we're the provocative ones. Um, But one part of this thing that they've been doing for years is they've been trying to isolate Taiwan, right? Um, And and so I think it's a good thing when American politicians travel to Taiwan. And and I, for one, applaud uh, Speaker Pelosi for doing that. But this reminds me of, of Cliff May's great column where he said, hey, going, bravo for going, but where's the action? And to me, that's a key theme running through everything we're talking about is aligning words and deeds as you as you wrote bridge in your foreign affairs piece and that's why things like uh, this wednesday's senate foreign relations committee business meeting or markup on the taiwan policy act are so significant wherever you come down on the overall bill itself this would be the most significant revision on u.s taiwan policies i would argue since the taiwan relations act and it, it would dramatically change uh, if implemented and implemented quickly with a sense of urgency the balance of power in the region hopefully deterring war and if war comes making making us all more successful. So we've talked about some tangible steps we can take. um, And uh, if we take those steps, again, as you said, Mark, we can hopefully push this aggression to the right. Um, If we're unable to push it to the right, we'll ensure that uh, the forces of freedom, if I dare use that term, prevail, uh, and that our warfighters return home to their families. So I want to thank both of you for taking time to talk with me. And you've given us a lot to think about. And more importantly, I think you've helped set the agenda going forward for what we can do together, both Republicans and Democrats to close the gap between words and deeds when it comes to Taiwan. So I look forward to connecting again soon here on Foreign Policy.
1: Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpotency at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.